if you want to run faster, here's the best advice that you're going to get. Run slower. What? You're going to find out more about what that means on today's episode of The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body starting feet first, because you know those things are your foundation after all. And we break down the propaganda, and the mythology, that was hard to say, sometimes the flat out lies that you've been told about what it takes to run or walk or hike or play or do yoga or CrossFit, whatever it is you like to do and do it enjoyably and efficiently, effectively. And did I mention enjoyably? I know I did. That's a trick question. Um, but you know, we're going to get dive into that. We call this the movement movement because we are creating a movement that involves you. And I'll explain that in a second about natural movement, helping people rediscover that natural movement is the obvious, better, healthy choice. The way we currently think of natural food. I'm Stephen Sashin from zeroshoes.com, your host of the movement movement podcast. By the way, that part about the movement that's involving you, where this is a grassroots groundswell kind of thing that's happening as more and more people get hip to natural movement. And so the way you can help is really the obvious things. Go check out the website website, www.jointhemovementmovement.com. There's no cost to join. There's no actual thing about joining. Just that's the domain that I found. Um, and that's where you'll find all the previous episodes and all the different ways you can find the podcast, wherever podcasts are found, and all the ways you can share the word. So liking, sharing, thumbs up, hit the bell icon on YouTube. You know how to do it. In short, if you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. All right, so let's get started. I'm really, really happy to be having this conversation with someone who I started, you and I started talking right not too long after we started Zero Shoes. So Phil Maffetone, it is a pleasure to have you. I'm, I rarely do this, but I'm gonna do this for you. Dr. Phil Maffetone, <laughs> um, it is a pleasure having you here. Why don't you tell human beings who you are and what you do? Thank you, Stephen. It's really, really nice to be with you. Yeah, we started talking right uh, after you launched, and I, I got a pair of those sandals that uh, I had to put together myself, yep. actually, which was a treat. What a fun thing. You know, I'm really bad with instructions, so it took me like a week. To, to, <laughs> but then to you had the superpower things. of knowing how to make your own footwear. Then I could, you know, my triple jump went from, you know, 38 feet to 57. I mean, I what and could I say? Didn't your, didn't your mortgage rate go down and your kids get it into It did, business? yes. Yeah, that's what happens when you make your own <laughs> shoes. So backing up to the, who you are and what you do. I mean, look, and I got to preface this with, when did your first book come out? Because that's when I first found you. You know, I have a really, really good memory for most things. Um, the first book was probably the early 80s. Yeah. And it might have been, I don't know if it was the heart rate monitoring book. I wrote the first heart rate monitoring book. Um, okay. That wasn't the one that I got. Uh, keep going because my brain, because I can't remember the, titles for things. The, the next one, which ended up being like five editions, was called In Fitness and in Health. That one. I got that book in the late 80s. So anyway, so you're the author of In Fitness and in Health, but say more about who you are and what you do. And I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna stay out until you do. Stay, oh gosh, now I gotta do I have a script or something? Pressure's on. I, I don't know, you know, my fear, I've said this before. My fear when I travel is, you know, I pulled up to my seat on the plane and I I'm kind of getting my stuff up above and down below. And the guy next to me says, Hi, I'm Bob. I'm an accountant. What do you do? <laughs> what can you I mean? Here, let me get you started. I, I wear many hats. Is that that's true? Job? I'm gonna. Well, you're a musician, but that's not what we're talking about. I'm gonna give you one of your hats, and I am not a haberdasher, so and I don't think I've ever gotten to use the word haberdasher or haberdashery in a sentence before. So I feel good about that. I'm, I'm impressed. Uh, you know, you do what you can. I've never used it. Now it'll be. No, in I your will. Head. Sometime during the I'll next. I'll reference week. you. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't make it up. Uh, you are one of the world's leading experts on running and especially on training for uh, running long distances. Would that be an accurate statement? Sure. That's good. Um, you know, when I first began my career, I opened a clinic and I, I basically combined exercise physiology, biofeedback, brain and body, biofeedback, physiotherapy, diet and nutrition. And then quickly afterwards, I realized I needed to become a coach because mm. people were getting hurt or people were coming in who were hurt. And in asking them how they got hurt or doing a good history to figure out how they got hurt, I realized that their training is hurting them. And it wasn't uncommon for me to say, you know, after they brag about how they were a couch potato and then they... You know, they watched the New York City Marathon and they, you know, they bought a pair of shoes and started. 
And I would say, you know, you would have been better off staying a couch potato. <laughs> Look what you've done to yourself. Besides, who and doesn't so have potatoes. Yeah, yeah. So they were, you know, they were. I was fortunate in that I could fix uh, most of them up, get rid of their injuries. And then suddenly, you know, two, three months later, four months later, they'd come back with another injury. And I'd say, well, what did you do between then and now? And I realized that at that point that I had to intervene. I had to be a, a partner with them to help with the training process. I, you know, I was all about personalization. How can we individualize this therapy? How can we individualize food and, and the rest of lifestyle and so I sort of enlisted myself as their coach in this endeavor. And so, you know, you can add coach to my resume if you want, but it's not technically, I'm not the kind of coach that gives a training schedule, just right. like I'm not the kind of uh, nutrition person who gives diets. I've never right. done that. And it's hard. People don't understand that. Oh, you, you do nutrition. Can you give me a diet? No, I can't. Oh, can I get my training schedule now? No, no. So, and it's a real re-education of the world. And at that point, you know, the running boom was booming and the mentality was uh, no pain, no gain. Right. And the track and field coaches who you and I know a lot about were coming over to the endurance world because as they got older and started retiring, they had nowhere to go. And so they brought with them the mentality of you got to train fast to race fast. And so it was a tough sell, all of my stuff. I had lots of, I was called lots of names, really? <laughs> even by publications. <laughs> really? Like what? You know, are there children listening to this? If there are, they're about to learn something new. So go for it. <laughs> Just that, you know, when you, when you buck the trend, whether it's right or not, is yeah. it's a tough thing. It's an antisocial, it's a, you know, is this guy crazy? Is, you know, where does he come up with this? Um, there's no science behind it. And of course, as the years went on, nice. both the science caught up and I yeah. started doing my own science to demonstrate the results. So, you know, if I could sum it up, it's all common sense because this humans have been this way for millions of years. So what's the big deal? Why is it so difficult to understand the concepts? I was literally having that conversation this morning. It's like human bodies are all the same shape. They all move the same way and there are optimal ways of doing that. But the thing that's amazing to me or annoying, frustrating, fascinating, you know, pick your choice of words. I was on a panel discussion at the American College of Sports Medicine. There's a guy from Brooks and a guy from Adidas. And when asked, you know, what's the future? Their answer, both of them had the same basic answer, which is personalization. We're going to make something individual for your unique little snowflake life. And I said, uh, kind of under my breath, you know, you guys are acting like you need one shoe for walking into the bathroom and a different shoe for leaving the bathroom because <laughs> you weigh less. And it was just, you know, everybody likes the idea that here's a special thing just for me, but we're all the same basic thing when, and in fact, the better we get at that thing, the more alike we become because we find optimal ways of doing things. But we'll get back to that in a second. I want to back up. I just remembered, I don't expect that you do this, uh, that you remember this. I'm probably remembering it incorrectly given my memory, but the way I'm remembering it now is probably good enough. The first conversation we had, I said, because there's a couple of counterintuitive things that you've taught since day one. So one that we I teased at the beginning about running slower, and we'll talk about that and relates to heart rate and heart rate variability, which people very much don't understand. Um, and the other is footwear. From very early on, your recommendation was go get the thinnest, cheapest pair of shoes you can so that it's not interfering with your feet. The closest thing to barefoot you can can get, get this is decades before the whole barefoot movement kicked in in roughly 2009. And one of the first things I said to you, and I'll, I'll pretend that I'm asking you for the first time now so you can answer again, was do you feel vindicated or frustrated that it took so long for people to catch up with you? Good question. I, I mean, I feel good. My, my goal is to help people, you know, and more people are being helped now because of all the folks jumping on the various bandwagons. And so I'm okay with that. And I forgive the people that called me all kinds of bad names, except for a few. And I won't tell you who, but they work at running magazines. And hold on, just to say, not that running magazines are in any way tainted, but one publisher, I won't mention them by name, but it rhymes with Flunner's World. They, <laughs> they put out a book called The Complete Guide to Barefoot and Minimalist Running. 
and I'm not in it. Zero Shoes is not in it. And we were the number one seller of minimalist footwear. I, on the- I doubt I'm in it. Oh, I haven't looked at the check. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it could not be a less complete guide. And actually here's an epilogue. Um, at one point, one of my best friends from college was the president of the company that publishes that stuff. And I, when he became president, I called and said, you know, how come we're not in the complete guide? And he got back to me, he goes, you didn't pay for advertising, did you? <laughs> I said, oh, there you go. That's the thing. And, and people don't understand that. It's just so. There's another thing you've been saying, and you even wrote a book about it that's on. So I have a bunch of your books on our Zero Shoes bookshelf, our bookcase. And I want before we get into running slow to run fast uh, or any of the other counterintuitive things, one of your other books, 159, which is your ideas about what it would take for someone to run a sub two-hour marathon, a legit sub two-hour marathon, like in an actual race, not under the perfect conditions that were set up for Kipchoge. But Let's just dive into that and just share with people your thoughts about about the possibility of human beings running a sub two and your thoughts about what's happened, you know, with the Kipchoge race and what Nike was doing with that product that um, that he was wearing. Yeah, I originally wrote an article called the 159 Marathon, and I think it was 1998. Wow. And people, you know, they thought it was a, a, a com, you know, a goof kind of one of those goof articles. Right. Um but okay, fine. And then I wrote a, another version of it and then a third version of it. And then eventually thought, gee, this, this would make a great book and eventually got around to writing it. And wait, wait, when you did that first article, what was the world record? Oh God, I don't know. So 1998, uh, I, I want to say it's two, be in it. 205. Oh, I was going to say probably closer to 210, maybe in 98, but yeah, you know, somewhere in that, I mean, regardless, five minutes or 10 minutes difference is massive. So yeah. I imagine, you know, people were thought you were insane. And then, it- yeah, but, uh, you know, all you have to do is connect the dots. You look back at what happened way back when you look at how things progressed and you theorize where we could end up and how could you not do that? And how could you be emotional about it? And I thought, you know, it's not about springs and your shoes or finding the fastest downhill marathon. It's about breakthrough physiology, which was really not breakthrough. Uh, My feeling is that it was all about people understanding where we came from as a species. And Mm. the closer they could get to doing that again in their training, the sooner the two-hour mark would be broken. So can you say more about what that entails? A big part of that has to do with fat burning. If we access our body fat, even the leanest of us has enough fat to to go hundreds of miles. So we have unlimited, virtually unlimited fat stores. And if we, the more energy we have, the faster we go. It's like a steam engine. You know, Mm -hmm. you throw some more coal in there or wood and the fire gets hot, it makes more steam and the, the engine goes faster. And by the way, you also conserve your glycogen so that when you get to the last few miles, uh, you could pick up your pace and really, you know, get a whole lot more seconds off your time. So, and then the idea of running with a, a gait that was natural was a big part of that. Because when you start looking at what does weight do in a marathon time, what do shoes, bad shoes do to your gait, they turn them bad. And how does gait affect your energy systems and your time? You know, all of that stuff. It was, there were so many factors and, you know, it was the program I had developed uh, really well up to that point. And it was just an application of it to the world's best marathoners. And this is what they can do when they push the right buttons. Well, and one of the points you made in self-serving that, well, I won't even say it's self-serving when I bring this up. Because um, it's a little departure from what we're doing at Zero Shoes, um, you also suggested that it would be someone running on an appropriate course and bare feet. Yeah, I mean, I I just thought the best way to deal with the foot issue was to to be barefoot, simple. And and there were people doing that. They weren't getting much press. They were considered strange. And I had run barefoot in in high school. Half the time they wouldn't let me. But the simple idea that the human body is more efficient, you know, without gloves on when you're trying to type. It's just common sense. And so, you know, that's for where it was. And it was also that, you know, okay, if you're going to be running on a course that 
could have some dangerous things or, sure. you know, involves some gravel or pebbles. And okay, you could wear some shoes, some really flat, simple light shoes, but spend a lot of time barefoot while you're training. And of course, while you're hanging around, because the barefoot state strengthens your muscles. And so that with a healthy foot, you put that into a shoe and now you're in, in much better shape than you were before. People forget when Abibi Pekil ran the marathon barefoot, what they often overlook is that he was running on cobblestones. And so, you know, people think that there's certain conditions that are better or worse. Like that's one of those conditions that people say, well, you can't do that because, you know, cobblestones. And uh, he, he did totally fine. My, my joke is, and then the next Olympics, you know, he ran in shoes and he did not win. And then after that, he died. So clearly there's a connection between wearing shoes and dying. <laughs> Seems somewhat obvious. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I've run on cobblestones barefoot, and they're it's it's actually a lot of fun. It's fun. There's times where you, your toes like get in just the right spot, and you get that little bit of grip and push off. It's a blast. Yeah, I think that's the thing that that's so upside down is most people who've never experienced trying to run barefoot other than like to the mailbox and back, they immediately go to all the imagined things that they think would go wrong. I mean, why it is that people think that the world is just full of broken glass waiting to puncture your foot is a mystery to me. Even in New York city where I've walked and run barefoot for dozens and dozens and dozens of miles, I never stepped on. Actually, I take it back. I probably did step on some broken glass, never noticed. In fact, I, wait, even crazier, when I was first living in New York City in 1980, 81, um, my day job, I was a street performer. And the gig that I did, I walked on broken glass on my bare feet. Wow. Who knew? Man, so, I was down there then. Really? Oh, man. I should have come by. Were you playing music? No, I was never, you know, I love the idea of being a musician. I'm a good technician. I've picked up a couple of things where I can get competent, but then I realized the gap between being a technician and a musician is a lot of time and different genetics. Yeah. So <laughs> that just didn't happen. Um, but uh, sorry, we missed each other in New York. So, yeah. so moving back, I mean, I, I was just saying, but people imagine all these unpleasant things that almost never happen, but they forget the pleasant parts that everyone who's done it describes just, you know, nonstop, um, how great it feels, how light it is, how natural it feels, how wonderful it is just, you know, getting all these different sensations where you feel connected to the ground. Um, if you're hiking or, you know, on a trail where you really feel like you're part of the thing instead of just walking over the thing, they don't have that in their brain, even though all of us have experienced it at some point. And remember, but like, that's just not where people go after 50 years of wearing big, thick padded shoes. It's a hard sell of, and it was for me in making these recommendations of, of being barefoot. And a lot of the time, my recommendations were based on therapeutic reasons. I want you to be barefoot mm -hmm. for therapeutic reasons, because your body is really screwed up and you need right. to retrain it. And we're right. going to do a number of therapies. And one of them is you're going to take your shoes off and start walking outside and, you know, reestablishing this connection between your feet and your brain. There's a previous episode of the podcast that I did with um, Dr. Sarah Ridge from BYU um, that I think I titled it something like the stupidest research in the world, something like that. Cause Sarah did research showing that if you just walk in a pair of truly minimalist shoes, which not all shoes that are called minimalist actually are, but if you just walk in a pair of minimalist shoes, you build foot muscle strength as much as if you did an actual foot strengthening exercise program. And I said, it's amazing that you had to prove you. <laughs> I mean, what kind of, you know, it, it's the dumbest science ever that we have to demonstrate what's like you said, such common. Yeah. Yeah. That was a while ago. When was that? Oh yeah. I don't do time very well either. So I'm going to say, I remember, I remember glancing at that because I, I look at a lot of science stuff and yeah. I zip through all these, you know, because there's so much stuff that comes out. And so I zip through and if I see something interesting, I read it. And if I don't, if it looks boring, I skip it. And I looked at her stuff and I thought, mm, okay, yeah, nice. Um, that's boring. Right. <laughs> but great, great work she did. Oh, it's great work. And, you know, and then the, the bookend of that one is research that actually just came out not too long ago from Dr. Protopapas, which was showing the opposite, where if you put arch support in the shoes of healthy athletes, they get weaker within 12 weeks. Their foot muscle mass drops by like 17% or up to 17%. And again, you know, not rocket science. You don't move something, it gets weaker. We know- Yeah, those are old ideas. Right. You know, I've, I've written a lot about this and they, they're not just related to the feet. Of course. But- 
We're talking about an ankle bandage. We're talking about a knee brace, a low back support. Um, anything you put on the body to, to try to support the joint is going to result in the muscles working less and they literally can get weak. And, yeah. you know, I just cringe when I'm at a sporting event and seeing these people with, you know, they're all bandaged up like, you know, what? Do you, this is not a boxing match. <laughs> and well, that's actually a really interesting point because people don't understand the point of taping up and boxing, um, which is a whole different game altogether. And yeah. well, anyway, we, don't, we don't need to get into that. <laughs> Backing up. So, so you wrote this very interesting book about running a sub two marathon at a time where that just seemed crazy. And now that um, Bakila did it, uh, what thoughts do you have about that race or that race? That's not even a race about that run. Uh, well, I thought it was a scam. I mean, it, you know, it was a commercial. I thought it, it diminished professional running. But what's interesting is it was done. And the fact that it was done is always in the past, the history of, of sports has always shown a strong connection between when people are doing something, almost doing something, coming close to doing something. That's when, you know, these big, like when, when Bannister broke the four minute mile, all of a sudden there were a lot of people doing it. My hunch is there was a lot of people who were, had he not run that race, there was a bunch of other people who would have been the first one to sure. do it because they were ready without to do it. Without a doubt. So yeah, there's without no, a doubt. I, I so think I think the, the fact that, I think what happened was someone broke, even though it was was a scam, someone did it. Yeah. And now in the minds of the few lead pack runners, you know, there are probably a couple of dozen of them maybe, awesome. who have the ability to run sub two hours at a, uh, Berlin Marathon or Chicago, wherever, when all the conditions are right. Yeah. Now it's much more of a reality. So I, I think you'll see that coming along pretty quick here too. Well, one of the points that I've made about it is his world record at Berlin prior to the sub two was 201.40, I think. I'm not remembering exactly. Or 201.50, somewhere in the 201.40, 201.50. He only ran 40 seconds faster, roughly 40 seconds faster. Yeah, so it must have been that. So it was like 48 seconds faster um, to run sub two, which means he was running basically like 4.58 seconds per mile faster to break two, which is not a whole lot. <laughs> it's not. And you could say that in that circus event that they had, he didn't really have that good of a race. Right. Yeah. Because he should have run a lot faster. He should have been down around 158, but he wasn't. And it apparently it was a little struggle at the end, but you know, he did it and, and, yeah, I'm very curious to see what happens next. If people really are inspired and it re we really do start to see those numbers drop, or if people think of it as kind of, ah, it was a one-off thing and you know it, nothing changes, it'll be interesting. I, I did like that, of course, Nike made it all about the shoes. And some number of months ago, Kipchoge was interviewed and he was saying, it wasn't the shoes, it was my legs. And he was really <laughs> mad about it, which I thought was brilliant. I love it when athletes get annoyed by their sponsors. I, I, I can I have some stories. I won't I won't go into it, but oh know, man, come on, you gotta get cutting out logos from their shoes and Ooh. gluing them on their sh other shoes that they're gonna wear in the Olympic, you know. Yeah, I've I've actually met a couple of people who've done that, sponsored by one company, wearing shoes from another, swapping yeah. the logos to make it look like it's different. Yeah. Um, and then people get mad. It's like I, I looked for that shoe, I couldn't find it. Oh, uh, it was um, specially made for me for that race. Yeah, specially made. That was yeah. Specially made excuse. Yeah, they they make them special. They they sold out of them. They were so. That's popular. what it is. We sold out. Yeah. It actually is an interesting point because a lot of runners are getting shoes made for them specially, and then people for whatever mm -hmm. reason think, oh, that they got. Did really good in that shoe. I'm going to go buy that shoe, and what they're buying completely different oh, than yeah. what that person was wearing. Yeah. So let's back up to where we tease thing about running slow to run fast, because this is actually one of the things, and heart rate and heart rate variability, because this is, I think, one of the things where you really have staked a claim, if you will, and obviously been one of the early proponents of all of this. I think the only other person that I know of who was talking about doing slower training for speed at all was Lydiard. And I don't know, you know, where you were in, in relation to, to that. Uh, but when people think of you most often when I'm online, people are talking about heart rate based training, slower training, et cetera. So let's dive into that, shall we? Sure. I was familiar with Lydiard's work um, a little bit early on, and then I became more familiar with him. And he, and he became a patient of mine. Oh, really? Um, and I tried to show him the heart monitor, and he was like so averse to it. I finally got him to wear it. And 
we tested that, but he was, you know, I said, look, all of what you're doing can be related scientifically with with a heart rate. And I would think you'd want that. No, 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 we do. You know, I mean, I'm all for letting the brain guide the body, but we are influenced so much in a negative way by society that we just can't do it. And Mm. so for me, the heart monitor was a biofeedback device that would allow people to respond to the environment and adjust their in this case, training intensity based on the body's need. Can you and say a little a pretty more, simple idea? Can you say a little more about explicitly what you're doing with the heart rate monitor and how people are using that? Well, specifically finding a point in intensity, as your intensity goes up, the body's metabolism changes to adapt to the energy needs. And as the intensity goes up, we, at lower levels of intensity, we burn more fat in a healthy person. We burn more fat and and lower amounts of sugar. And that fat burning, that high fat burning is a very healthy thing. But as the intensity goes up, fat burning goes down and sugar burning goes up rather quickly, actually. And now we're, we're no longer burning fat, we're burning a lot of sugar. So now we're risking tapping, uh, reducing our glycogen stores in training. If your goal is to train with high intensity training, that, that can work. But if you do it every day, it's, it's a problem. And also you're not burning fat. And what started happening, uh, and I noticed this in the 80s, what began to happen is that the athletes, all athletes who were training at higher levels of intensity were starting to increase body fat. Hmm. And if you increase body fat, uh, number one, you probably weigh more, which is a problem. But even if you don't, you have chronic inflammation because excess body fat is associated with chronic inflammation. And chronic inflammation means any little tweak that you have of an injury becomes more inflamed and you you know you could get a full-blown injury because of chronic inflammation due to excess body fat and so of course the diet plays a huge role in that i did a study four years ago maybe on where i looked at uh paul larson and i uh, looked at the the prevalence of of excess body fat in the u.s And we found that 91% of Americans had excess body fat, a condition called overfat. And what the data, there was some really good data that had just come out and I jumped on it and I grabbed it and I said, this is really good. And part of that data was that they were looking at the exercise rates and exercise rates were increasing, more people were exercising, but at the same time, people were getting more overfat. Interesting which leaves the diet part. And, you know, if we're eating junk food, if we're eating sugar, we're going to store more fat because sugar does a lot of bad things. One of the things it does is it impairs our ability to burn fat, no matter how slow and easy we train. Right. And number two, it impairs the aerobic system, which is our fat burning engine. And so we have problems if everything in our life is wonderful but we're eating too much, we're eating junk food, we're eating sugar, we can't be healthy. So um, the way people are using the heart rate monitors by feedback device is basically as a way of measuring uh, an objective measurement of intensity? Yes. And what my goal was, there were two things. One is to train the person in a, in a healthy way, which meant in most cases, training at a lower intensity. And then that will help them get healthier in addition to being more fit, but also use that same heart rate as a guide to show that we're really doing something. We're really making progress. And that progress comes from the ability to get faster at the same heart rate. Right. So in the, in the beginning, people say, well, I can't, I can't run this slow. How could you run this slow? I'm, people are going to laugh at me. You know, I say, well, run at night. You know, nobody will see you. <laughs> and I mean, people, that's a common question, you know. Yeah, I'm sure. And they often don't say they're going to look at, they often say, how can I, I can't run this slow. And then I say, I know what you mean, run at night. So I want to measure 
progress. I don't want to assume that you're getting better in your training and we wait three, four, five months and then you're going to run your first big race and we find out that you really haven't done anything. I want to see that you're making progress. It doesn't have to be week to week, but month to month. And that progress in a runner comes as faster paces at the same submax heart rate what I call the MAF heart rate, which I've measured. So that's a heart rate that provides the best fat burning state. Right. And it usually ends up being a slower pace, mainly because so many people are overtrained. Oh, that's interesting. Say more about that. Well, usually if you're just thinking, I'm going to start running, you know, I've been walking for six months. I I kind of feel like I want to start running. Okay. Get a heart monitor on, you start jogging. You'll be able to jog a little bit, really slow, which is understandable. But if you're a trained runner and you've been training for a year or two or five or 10 or 20, and you know, you've run some PRs, but you haven't lately, you've been injured a fair amount, you're tired a lot, you know, you're, and you say, I'm going to start doing this low heart rate training. You're depressed. Mm -hmm. You're running so slow. And this happens in, in, beginners and it happens in professional athletes at every pace along the way. I I had a podcast with Mark Allen the other day and he was reminding me how he felt when he first put the heart monitor on and he and I were running around the track in Southern California back in I think it was 83 and and he was just laughing. He said (laughs) He said, yes, this is how slow he was like an 820 pace. Right. So this, by the way, Mark Allen, you know, world champion triathlete, um, very accomplished athlete. And yeah, 820, I mean, that's barely better than walking for him. And when he got out on the roads, um, you know, he was r- around nine minute pace. So, <laughs> so how, but he progressed to, he progressed to 520. So right. that's the point is that you have to find your starting place. If you don't find the starting place, your progress just doesn't come. You make a little progress, but then you fall back and then you mm-hmm. try it again. And, you know, that's how humans did it in the beginning. So how do people, um, and part of this will be uh, getting in touch with you and the things that you've done, but I'll, I'll ask you anyway. So how do people find that starting pace, that starting heart rate that they're going to use as their baseline? Well, in the beginning, I figured it in clinically in my office, uh, I would do an evaluation. I would do a history. I would do a, a, like a master's two-step test where I'd measure their resting rate and have them do a, a high-intensity running a place or stepping up on a bench for one minute. And then, you know, where does your heart rate go and, and do all that evaluation. Then I'd go out on the track with them and I would have them jog slow. I'd have a heart monitor on them. I'd have them jog slow. And I would see how their slowly elevating heart rate affects their gait. And what's interesting is at the low intensities, the gait is really pretty good in a, in a, reasonably healthy runner. And as it goes up, as your your intensity goes up, as your pace goes up, when you have that switch from high fat burning to lower fat burning and elevating sugar burning, the gait starts to get screwed up. In what ways? So there'd be irregularities, fatigue would, you would sense fatigue and you'd start over striding, mm-hmm. uh, depending on how long the person was running, but it, you know, gait analysis was something I had been doing from my years in school. And, and so to get out on the track and watch people was pretty simple that it's easy to see when you're trained to do that. And so what I did was I picked a heart rate that correlated with my physical findings in my, in my office and the heart rate that preceded the onset of irregular gait. And I did that for a couple of years. And I realized that there's got to be a way to it's just mathematics. There's got to be a way to do that without going through all this so that people can do it on their own. And I came right. up with something called the 180 formula, which I tested for years after that. I tested the formula with my evaluation until everything was tweaked and it was correlating quite well. So people can you know, go to my website, look up the 180 formula. There's a, probably in the last two years, there's a newer f- version of it that adds a little more individual questions, but you have to answer questions about your health, about your fitness, 
and you can come up with that MAF heart rate, which is your max heart rate for you to train aerobically at. And then you want a, a 10 beat range, that's your zone. And that's where you want to train for a period of three, four, five, six months sometimes doing no speed work. Interesting. And to reiterate, and what happens after you've done that is then how much are people working at picking up their pace at that same heart rate or just finding that they're picking up their pace at that same heart rate? My focus with them is to relax, Mm. just relax. You know, it's almost like a meditation. It is a meditation. You're out there. It's quiet. You don't have people talking to you. You're not competing with your training partners, you know, just just relax and let your, you really have to let your brain do the work. Just take the edge off the intensity. And, and in some cases it's, you know, it's a big edge, but whatever, whatever your body needs. And as time goes on, like after the first month, you should see a noticeable improvement in, in your pace. Certainly after two months, you should have a measurable change. You might be running 30, 45 seconds faster after two months. And I have something called the MAF test where you go to the track and now with GPS, it's easier on the road. If you have a fairly flat road, you'll see that change from week to week. Mm-hmm. And then you know you're doing the right thing. And if it doesn't change, something is wrong. And that something is either you lied about the MAF formula, and I've had some crazy the things people do. You know. <laughs> so if you have this problem and if you have that problem and if you're on you know, medication, you have to do this, not that, because there's a health issue. I want to come back to that in a second because I have another, another thought possibly. But what's, what I love about what you're talking about, there's a certain irony. And the irony is something we mentioned before where everyone likes to think of themselves as their own little unique snowflake. But when they're looking to do training, they want to have something that is just laid out linearly. I just, you know, paint by numbers, step by step, rather than recognizing there are a unique little snowflake and it's going to be different every day. And you're becoming your own coach rather than relying on some external thing that has no relationship to reality at that time. Yeah. Following the schedule, blindly following the schedule. I have a schedule for, you know, you want to run a faster marathon, do this for three weeks and you'll run your fast, you know, Right. That happens to be on the headline of that. What was that magazine? We were, oh, uh, Flunder's World. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, my one other potential explanation, there were some guys in the UK who had done some genetic testing. And one of the things that, again, human beings don't like is, especially people in the West, is thinking that there are uh, limitations, not only f- for humans in general, but for themselves in particular. And so we know that there are some people who respond differently to different kinds of stimulus. And these guys in the UK identified, I think it was 11 different genetic markers. And depending on what, like eight to nine of them show, you may be a VO2 max non-responder. You you may not have the ability to improve your ability to use oxygen efficiently and arguably possibly, you know, not be getting results by doing slower training. Now, the number of people who are in this situation, it's a very small percentage. Um, I am one of them, it turns out. And now, not surprisingly, I gravitate and always have towards sprinting. I never gravitated towards distance running at any speed. (laughs) I don't even like walking long distances. Not interesting to me. But um, now, I know having said that, there are people who will use that as an excuse And go, I'm a VO2 max non-responder, which unless you get tested, you don't know that. But it is an interesting thing that there are these individual differences. One of my favorite things about track and field and master's track in particular is that you eventually have to come to a, a conclusion about yourself, which is what's the thing I'm good at? And am I good? Am I a 50 meter, 100 meter runner? Am I a 200 meter? Like, I don't even run the 200. I'm not a good 200 meter runner. 100 meters, like 50, 60, I'm great. 100, I'm okay. 200, not my race. Anything longer, I can't do that. Not my thing. And yeah. then there's people who are on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. Well, we, you know, we're, I have a theory that we are always as good as our peers. And so if you want to know what you're good at, if you did enough things when you were younger, yeah. you're 
good at the same things today relative to your, your age group. You know what's fascinating about that? No, you don't. I'll tell you. So I was a gymnast way back when, started in junior high school. And one of my two closest friends who also started gymnastics with me, his dad had uh, eight millimeter video, eight millimeter film of us from the day we started till the day six years later, we were graduating high school. And from day one, we were all sort of ranked. I was the best, then Jim, then Rich. And we got significantly better over the next six years, but you would never be confused about who was who. And we stayed in that same ranking, if you will. We just improved what we already had inherent in you know who we were. And then yeah. in my 40s, I discovered something that my mother didn't know, which was that her father, whom I took after, was a gymnast in high school. No idea. No one ever knew that. Well, I mean, he knew that, of course. Yeah. A quick note about the gene thing. Um, people use genes as an excuse a sometimes, lot. you know, oh, my grandparents, you know, were obese or you right. know, they were alcoholics. So I guess I'm going to be an out, you know, come on. So there's something called the expression of these genes. In most cases, uh, if you have the gene, it doesn't mean you're going to be whatever. Right. It has to express itself and what expresses genes, but our lifestyle, especially the foods we eat, mm -hmm. genes can be expressed after a meal. So right. this is really, really important. People need to you know, get off the genetic bandwagon. It's a, it's a balance, I think, between recognizing the, the impact of your genetic history and recognizing you know, where you can or can't take that. I, I watched a very interesting video recently um, just talking about steroids and how many people think, oh, if you just take steroids, you become huge or whatever it is. Like, nah, not so simple. You know, Here's some people who've taken steroids who were non-responders. And here's some people who took tiny bits of steroids and just blew up because they totally responded. And this one coach, actually, he said, if you're going to do a steroid cycle, the first cycle you do, that will tell you everything about your potential. Yeah. Very clever. I'd never heard anyone yeah. talk about that. But yeah, that balance between recognizing the who you are, but the boundaries that that gives you are pretty wide. They're very wide. And there's a couple of issues. One is, and I wrote a scientific paper on this, we need to not just be fit, but we need to be healthy. And there's so many mm. athletes who are fit, but unhealthy. They retire early because they're so broken down. They right. never reach their athletic potential. And the athletic potential issue is such that, I mean, you could take almost anybody out there and improve their athletic potential and have them run PRs in a relatively short period of time. There's also, there's another thing that's that happened over the years that I think affects people's perception about what's possible for themselves or anyone. And it's just the, the number of people and the availability of information about people who are doing some activity. Again, I'm thinking about gymnastics. I, I vividly remember being in a stadium watching Nikolai Andreanov, who, when he did the first triple back flip off high bar, I mean, it was, he missed the first two, then he did the third one. We have it on, we actually have it on that eight millimeter film. And, you know, it was the most amazing thing you've ever seen. There's high school kids who do it now. Yeah. You know, there's strength moves that no one could do in the eighties. High school kids do it now. And so, and with running, there's so many more people running. The population of people doing this thing is so much bigger. There's more people doing more amazing things, which skews sure. your perception about, mm -hmm. you know, what's possible and who can do what. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, the other thing, and this is important for professional athletes in particular, but it's, it's important for everybody. And it's that it's all about you. Yeah. Don't go into this race thinking about who's, let's see, who's here and he, this guy's, you know, think about you. And man, that sometimes breaks the mold and, and releases people's abilities because they've removed a stress from their life and they run their own race. Even in 100 meters, it took me years to learn to ignore the guy whose either shoulder I was on or vice versa. Yeah. And it's very hard when there's someone, when you hear someone catching up to you, it's very sure. hard. Or when you're- Yeah, I mean, your gates change. Yeah, exactly. You're sensing that. And you, you see it in, in a longer race where mm. there's enough time to do it, even in a mile. But certainly in a marathon, you watch that lead pack. Yeah. You see all these people and I try and it's kind of, I play this game to see who are they keying off. <laughs> and then if, if he changes his stride, 
are they, how long does it take for them to change it? You know, it's really fascinating to see how that works. That's so interesting. Do you think that's just sort of like a mirroring imprinting thing or is it a little, I mean. It's exactly how, what it is. Yes. Fascinating. Um, mirror neurons in the brain. If I'm doing this right now, your brain is contracting the muscles that I'm using to lift my arm. Your brain is literally there. It's contracting them. You're not moving yet, but the action is there. It is kind of funny, again, thinking of things that may, that are just common sense. So we only discovered mirror neurons in the not too distant past, yet we've had the phrase monkey see, monkey do for a very long time. Yes, yes, yes. And we're, we're just, you know, hairless monkeys. Yeah, and we there have been a lot of clinical things. Also, we've had um, the benefits of motor neurons, and there's a lot more complexity to that system, but the benefits we've used in mental imagery and have, have done so for for decades, uh, you know, the high diver who gets up and stands there and closes his eyes and imagines the activity, which he spent hours and hours and hours working on mm -hmm. uh, with video. And, you know, and likewise, I just wrote an article, I don't know if it came out, but called Imagination Injuries or something like that, where I talked about when I was in practice, and my practice was in Westchester County. So I was you know, near New York City and near near Boston. So the marathon in New York and Boston were like, there was always a big buzz in the running community. And my, the article talks about uh, what happens when we watch these races back then on, on the TV. And we think, God, I could run that way. <laughs> and the next day you go out and you overstride like a canyon or whoever was on the lead pack. And then they come hobbling into my office and I asked them how it got hurt. When did it, you know, and I traced it back to them having this image that had nothing to do with their body, but they were going right. to try this it. This is something that I say all the time when people, especially when someone says um, they're comparing themselves to some Olympic marathoner. Yeah. I, go, I don't want to point out the obvious, but you're like a 105 <laughs> pound Kenyan. I mean, maybe it's just me. You know, but you're like two hundred and five pound Kenyans. So actually, this I say is, five foot two hundred and five. Yes, <laughs> this is our society. We have a yeah. sick society, and one of the sicknesses is that we instill this stuff in people, in kids at young ages, and they're allowed to grow up with these ridiculous ideas that are that anyone are just can become false. anything. I mean, well, anyone can become anything. Yes, mothers like to say that, and it's not untrue, but. That doesn't mean you could run a, a 201 marathon. Uh, there was a local Olympian whose name is not coming into my brain right now, but hopefully will by, by the end of the story. Um, at a big panel discussion, he, they, someone asked him, you know, how do you coach kids to become, you know, the super fast runners that you have? He goes, what? And they're like, they asked him again, he goes, no, no, no. I go to the elementary school and I look for the fastest kids. And those are the ones that I coach. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... Got it. <laughs> it's yeah. uh, it's very Russian of him, um, even though he's not Russian. But that's the thing. It's like, again, we have a bigger population to draw from. You start finding the genetic freaks. Well, that's, yeah. And I shriek when somebody says, well, my kid's graduating high school. He's got a scholarship at this university and he's going to see this coach so-and-so. And I just... There's a coach. What's their, their attitude is, you know, get a bunch of guys, run them into yeah. the ground. Whoever's left, that's your team. Yeah. There's a coach who will remain nameless, whom I know, and I've been on the track with him and his athletes, and that is exactly how he coaches. It's like, we'll beat them all up, and whoever, you know, last man standing wins. And there's a lot of people who who could have had very promising careers that were cut short. I think actually back in my gymnast days in college, I knew these two women who were trained by their mother and father. They only trained three days a week. They were national champions. And then they got to college and they were training five days a week. Now, when they were only training three days a week, never had an injury. Five days a week, constantly injured. Well, again, look at Roger Bannister. I mean, if you look at his, his workout ethic, you know, he, what was he doing? He wasn't even training. <laughs> yeah. He was a full-time yeah, yeah. medical student at the same time. Talk about stress. Right. Yeah. It's a whole <laughs> different thing. So um, I want to bring this into the finish line, if you will. Um, is there anything that we sort of missed in just, you know, the things that you've experienced, the things that you discovered and how they either have or haven't yet caught up to the way you've been thinking? I'm sure there are a lot of things. Well, I got time for one, dude. Music and the brain. Mm, you know, okay. so I, I'm amazed that people don't know that our brain is important 
in sports. <laughs> in what context? And so that's it. In all context, this is where it comes from here. Yeah. It starts yeah. here. And if we don't have a healthy brain, we can't have a healthy body that moves properly. Mm. So that is, of course, the brain is 60, 65% fat. And if you don't have healthy fats in the brain, it's not going to work right. So I could leave you with that. Well, let's tease with that. Let's use that as an excuse for you telling people how they can get in touch with you and your work and find out more. And so we've touched on the uh, the running part of things. We haven't talked on brain and diet so much, but I know that that's a big chunk of what you're doing. So people can find that when they find you. So how can they do that, Phil? They can go to my website. I'm told there's more than 400 articles um, about this kind of stuff, and it's all free. My website is philmaffetone.com. And, uh, and that's uh, and just for those of you who uh, I, I always love it, like on NPR, when they say we're sponsored by so-and-so and they, you know, list the, they give a domain name that's impossible to spell because you have no idea what that is. So P-H-I-L-M-A-F-F-E-T-O-N-E.com. That's great. I got to, I got to use you for my like, like, <laughs> marketing or something. And if you want to, I'm putting some playlists together. I've broken down. I haven't given in. I've just broken down to create some playlists for exercise. And and I've always wanted people to not listen to music when they exercise. I've always wanted them, them to listen to their bodies. Mm-hmm. That's what the brain is for. Mm-hmm. I'm going to listen to my body. Oh, there's this little thing. I wonder why that is. Oh, oh if I slow down, it gets better. But we did a survey and we found 80% of the people were, were listening to music when they ran or biked. Hmm. And um, that was a little depressing. And I just thought, okay, so we've, we've got these great earbud heart rate technology gadgets for people who don't like chest straps. The sound is incredible. Hmm. And unfortunately, you can also talk on the phone, which is the worst thing to do when, when you're working out. But if you have to listen to music, listen to math music. That's my tagline, I think, for my music website. But my music website has all eight of my albums and some singles and it's maffetonemusic.com and you can download the music for free there and uh, make playlists or use the ones I have and it will be slow and easy in the beginning so you warm up and slow and easy at the end so you cool down and whatever it is in the in the middle so I like it and I think you know giving it away for free you'll, you'll make millions of dollars in volume that's the way it'll work Without a doubt. I mean, you know, play my stuff on, I'm on all the, I didn't realize it until the other day, there's like 150 online streaming companies. I'm on all of them. And so please uh, play them because I make about a half a penny every time you play a song. And God, so I got to check it, you know, for $30 every month or something. And I, uh, from some acting things I did 40 years ago, for years, I was getting checks for a dollar, dollar five. Dollar ten is brilliant. So, Phil, total, total pleasure um, as always. And for everyone who's here, if you have any questions, obviously you can throw them in as comments, or you can just ask Phil directly via his website. Uh, I just want to thank you all for being here, part of the movement movement, the podcast for people who wanted to learn the truth about natural movement. And again, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com for previous episodes to like and share and thumbs up and leave comments and subscribe to find out about upcoming episodes and all those things that you know how to do. I don't need to explain it to you, but most and most importantly, just go out, have fun and live life feet first.